If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How can a history degree help you to suss out fake news? How has COVID affected history students? And are history degrees still valued as much as they once were? On today's podcast... A panel of experts consider these questions and more as they tackle the big issues facing history education in 2021. Our panellists are Sophie Ambler, Richard Partington, Jason Todd and Anna Whitelock, who were speaking to our section editor, Rhiannon Davies. Since this episode was recorded, Anna Whitelock has moved from her role as head of the history department at Royal Holloway to become chair in history at City University of Lincoln. As such, some of her answers relate to her previous post. Hi, I'm Sophie Ambler. I'm a medieval historian and director of admissions at Lancaster University, and I work particularly on 13th century Europe. I'm Anna Whitelock. I'm head of the history department at Royal Holloway. Hello, I'm Richard Partington. I'm another medieval historian. I work on 14th century England primarily, um, and I'm senior tutor of Churchill College in the University of Cambridge. Hello, my name's Jason Todd. I, I feel a little bit like an interloper, so uh, I'm not a historian. Uh, I was a history teacher for 20 years, and now I currently run the History PGC at Oxford University. Thanks, everyone, for coming on the panel today. So to start off the discussion, why should people study history at university today? I think it's a really um, 
important question and a very topical question and a challenging question because for many people uh, it would seem that they're they're perhaps choosing not to study history or certainly wondering why um, in contrast to the past when there were so many uh, applications for, for history degrees. Now those numbers are falling and so I think we all have to ask ourselves why and I think that the need for uh, history and to study history is perhaps greater than ever, in fact. Um, History is a critical lens through which to engage with the present. It equips students with analytical skills um, as well as knowledge and understanding to, you know, interpret uh, the challenges of, of the present and the future. But I do think that we, you know, we all have to explain that and make the case for history, and that history is, of course, about looking backwards um, and gaining knowledge and understanding. But it's also about informing the present and the future. And in that sense, it's it's critical and it's relevant, and it's not simply kind of stuck in the past and in the archive. I think to to add to that as well, I think what history um, and the studying history at university can teach us is empathy. It's the ability to to put ourselves in the shoes through our sources of somebody who might have lived on the far side of the world or down our street a hundred or a thousand years ago and understand what forces shape their world or, or how they sought to shape it. And that can sometimes be a very uncomfortable experience. It can sometimes be very challenging. Um, but it's what we do as historians. And I think in a world of increasingly polarised debate, particularly, um, as well as the the influx of the huge amount of evidence or fake evidence or arguments or false arguments, um, the ability to empathise with people who might have a very different situation and worldview to us and try and find a way um, to understand them. I, I think um, that's one of the other reasons that history is, is more important now than ever. And it's what um, our best history undergraduates are able to do. I mean, I, I, I just add, you know, obviously those sort of civic functions I think are really important. I think the the empathy and the human dimensions are really important. I, I, I just add that it's also enormous fun um, and that actually, you know, there's a lot of enjoyment just simply. I mean, it's partly what Sophie's saying about the, those human dimensions, actually finding people in all their variety and idiosyncrasies is actually enormous fun. Uh, and, and, and I think that should be highlighted. Um, in relation to anybody wanting to study history. And I think just, sorry, we could talk for ages and ages. So obviously we're all um, people who feel very ardently about why people should study history, but it's it's thrilling. It is thrilling. Jason's totally right. But um, it's also that part of that excitement of studying history is learning how to do research. It's learning, um, and we do this as undergraduates, uh, as an integral part of the history degree, it's the ability to identify and excavate sources in order to follow subjects or people who are interesting to us. And you get a tremendous sense of fulfilment and excitement from that. And it's what you know stands historians in good stead um, to investigate the world around them as they go on from um, their degree. I'm sure we're going to go on and talk about transferable skills and uh, the value of history and employment, which remains immensely high. But I guess, I mean, I completely agree with everything that everyone has said. Um, I also think about history from a leisure perspective. It's one of the ways in which people escape from the pressures and worries of life um, most commonly. And uh, it's very important that we remind everyone, I think, that, that, that learning to do something which will help you 
in your private life as well as your professional and public life is really important. The other thing that I think I would want to say is if we're thinking about this from the perspective of somebody who's perhaps in the sixth form in year uh, 12, year 13, thinking about history at university, one of the things that we should say is, hey, why, why should you do it today? You should do it because you really like it and because you're really good at it. And uh, think about how you do in school. Think about your contemporaries. Think about your interactions with your teachers. Think about the times you find yourself thinking about history when you're not supposed to be thinking about history. And in the end, it, it, history is an extraordinary act of imagination, a transporting act of imagination that is anchored in a dimension of reality. And it's pretty unique in that respect. I mean, every academic endeavour is about the interaction between the person doing the studying, the person doing the learning, the person doing the teaching, and the thing, whether it's chemistry, biology, geography, history. But with history, it's that it's that imagination combined with the kind of pinned downness of of the historical record that I think is 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 just so exciting to deal with. And I remember myself actually coming out of out of university at the end of three years of really enjoyable work, able to assess information, situations, individuals so much better, so much faster than I'd been able to when I started at university, that it was actually, it was completely transformative for me personally, as well as professionally. I think that, I mean, history in a sense is such a broad encompassing term, but of course, within that, it's possible for students to kind of curate their own path through their history degree. Um, and, you know, as, as Sophie and Richard were suggesting, kind of travel to other places, inhabit different worlds, um, you know, walk in the footsteps of different people at different times. Um, and that's incredibly important, both as a kind of, you know, great source of fascination but also for those skills of of empathy that Sophie mentioned but I also think you know it creates this longer view perspective that's so important and is so often lacking I mean when one considers news reports and and um, commentary and the kind of you know answers that are provided on panel discussions like you know any questions or question time they're so short-termist their answers and so often policy and comment doesn't have this long view and this bigger context and this kind of comparative perspective. But also, I mean, history is an evolving discipline um, and, you know, there's new directions um, all the time being explored. I mean, things like environmental history is becoming a really important new area where people are exploring patterns of climate change and um, challenges to the environment in different areas of the world um, over time. And of course, that speaks to current concerns and and preoccupations now. Similarly, things about migration patterns, pandemics, um, you know, the the list goes on really. Um, Just how, you know, I was just working on my own book at the moment and I'm finishing a book on the beginning of the 17th century and I was reading about James I and his kind of fishing wars with the Dutch and wanting to preserve sovereignty of the seas uh, for the English. And, you know, there's just constantly kind of echoes of the present in the past. And that dialogue between past and present is really, really important. And I think that, you know, for students, I mean, for some students, it's a passion project studying history. But for others, I think they perhaps have to explain to their peers and to their parents why it's 
important and valuable in an age where, you know, we're moving towards, you know, artificial intelligence and computer science and the world of work is changing so much. But of course, providing that that long view, those skills of empathy and understanding and analysis are absolutely, you know, pertinent. And, you know, I would say that studying a history degree is a really radical act because it allows you to engage with the big questions of the present with real informed, you know, knowledge and understanding. And it allows you to kind of have a debate with your peers from an informed position rather than just a polemical one. That's absolutely right. So important. I mean, the contextual contextualization of the present. I mean, Anna, hearing you say about, you know, the, from the early 17th century perspective, well, here we are again. I mean, I looked at um, the uh, fishing fuss around Jersey in the immediate aftermath of Brexit. It's exactly what was going on in 1335, for largely the same governmental reasons to do with lack of control and unrealistic expectation. And uh, having that perspective is so important. And also, you know, that the, the, the history that the, the, the history that you learn teaches you to see through the flannel and the lies and the nonsense that we are now surrounded by in a world which is dominated by the transfer of information via social media. And, and equipping people, being equipped yourself with those skills to spot what's real from what's not real is, I think, really, really important. It's important for society as well as the individual. I think it's also, I mean, I mean, all of those things are really important. I think there are also really prosaic things. And I think about young people and, and, and the teachers that I work with. And a lot of them, there's a fantastic book by Marcus Collins and Peter Stearns, which is called Why Study History. And chapter three, which has been shared by sixth form teachers with a lot of people in their classrooms, are just those really prosaic reasons for why, you know, you're as likely to do retail and law as you are to become a history teacher as a result of a history degree. You're as likely to get good wages as a result of doing a history degree. And and that's partly because the communication skills, the problem-solving skills, which are really desirable when you've got a very precarious employment market that you're kind of sending graduates out into, History's got this facilitative ability to actually adapt to a range of different types of professions. And I think that's really important given, and I know, Rhiannon, you'll probably talk later about those threats, but, you know, the, this sort of STEM vision, that STEM is the only place where actually you can actually, you know, graduate and have a, a lucrative and a productive sort of career isn't borne out by the evidence. You know, the evidence suggests that actually history uh, yeah, it can be a really sustaining, uh, it might be a slower burn, but actually ultimately that I think Stearns and Collins talk about how ultimately historians are, you know, postgraduate historians are earning as much as anybody else might be in those sorts of professions. And there's a huge diversity of professions that you can go into. Not that there's anything wrong with being a history teacher. I, I mean, I think it's really important to think of history as both, you know, knowledge and, um, you know, information to inform, you know, policy and so on and, and historical research and all of that. But it's also creative content. And I mean, and, you know, I'm sure very often, you know, we're all rung up by television companies who want some of our research. And, and actually historical research is the content that finds its way onto television programmes or radio programmes or in audio guides at heritage heritage sites. And indeed, increasingly and really excitingly, 
it's used in um, online historical computer games, which is a huge growth area where more and more gamers are wanting authentic historical worlds. So, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing how these, these sort of careers um, spawn out of history. And there's a quote that I really love from Steve Jobs uh, of, of Apple. And he says, uh, it's in Apple's DNA that technology alone is not enough. It's technology married with liberal arts, married the, with the humanities, that yields us the results that make our hearts sing. In other words, it's the kind of history, it's humanities that kind of gives soul to something. And increasingly that's being appreciated um, in, in the kind of high tech sector and in the AI sector, where actually the big challenges for the future are, what can machines not do that humans can? And that knowledge, that understanding and that empathy is absolutely critical. And, and in a sense, historians are kind of custodians of humanity. And it's really important that, that we feed into uh, this sort of the new directions of, of, you know, modern technology and the workplace and, you know, design. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really critical as a, for the future um, as much as being all about the past. I think it's also worth pointing out how good history is and historically has been as a preparation for for leadership in um, in the UK and the rest of the world. We're in we're, we're in an age now where um, the the president of the United States is a history graduate. So if you look at the numbers of um, MPs and cabinet ministers um, in the UK who have history degrees or classics degrees, our own prime minister, or um, when you see how well the big questions of history um, seem to be such a good a good preparation for, for such um, sh- such roles of leadership. I mean, if I think, um, if I think, for instance, of my own special subject module at Lancaster, where we, we look at the 13th century, and it's the world of, of Magna Carta and Simon de Montfort and in the European context. But it's the big questions about um, how do governments wield power? What are the limits of their rule? And what possibilities are open to subjects or citizens to, to hold those governments to account when they cross the line? Or what possibilities are open to a female when she steps into a, a leadership role in a patriarchal world? These are all questions that are, are perennial. I think everybody would agree that they are continue to be important. But thinking about these kind of questions through history um, sets sets historians up um, as history graduates to be to be leaders in whether that's in in the world of um, technology or industry or teaching or um, in government. So earlier this year, Aston University in Birmingham and London South Bank University announced plans to cut their history courses. What do you think about these closures and what implications do they have for history as a discipline more widely? Okay, well, what I was going to say is, I I mean, I'm, I'm kind of maybe uniquely placed actually in my present job because I'm the academic head of an institution which is by statute 70% STEM. And uh, when I was um, first employed by Churchill College, which is 14 years ago, a senior tutor, um, they said to me, well, we, we, we need somebody who can, in a way, help us um, understand what we mean by this and communicate it to the outside world. And so STEM is something that, that you know, it's really important to me professionally, personally. I think we are in a phase in which there has been a rather crude understanding of the importance of STEM. And there are good reasons for this. And an historical analysis will show us that the UK in all sorts of ways has been underhitting in respect of scientific development, um, R&D, 
engineering, a whole pile of things. So I understand why government has pushed the STEM line so consistently. But I think it's this repeated assertion of STEM as the only way forward in respect of career that actually has really undercut what's been going on in history departments around the UK. Um, you combine that with the marketization of higher education in which it becomes possible for um, universities to make quite radical decisions um, about direction. You'll see this sort of thing. But it's important we remind ourselves again by using our skills of, as, as historians um, of times when actually there have been real panics about the disappearance of subjects like chemistry or mathematics. So the, the threat that history seems to be under right now, and I would absolutely agree with what Anna said earlier about the numbers of applications falling, and it is um, it's, it's certainly something we should be considering, I think, very seriously. But this is a moment and the moment may shift. And I think it is a, a product of a, 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 an understandable um, push from government around STEM, which has chimed with, with social forces, including um, immigration, uh, a changing um, a demographic balance in the UK, perhaps with people coming from outside the UK, from countries, particularly in Central Europe, where there is more of a tradition of technical education. And I think the effect that that can have kind of collectively, particularly in a place like London, where it's a, you know an absolute melange of people from all over the world, these things can have a kind of building or snowballing effect. And what's the biggest threat that you think history education faces in 2021? I mean, building on Richard's point, I think the threat would be that people, uh, senior managers and so on, don't see this as being a particular moment um, that has been brought about by, you know, the government's agenda, um, the focus on STEM, to some extent, the kind of humanities bashing um, that's gone on, and in a sense, not take a kind of longer view and see that, um, the sort of ups and downs of, of applications over time. Um, but I mean, I would also say that I do think, although of course no one would want to see cuts across the sector, um, and of course no one would want to see um, numbers of applications dropping, I think it also offers a challenge and an opportunity for us as historians, as departments, to kind of reflect on our offering and how we communicate that. And I mean, you know, so many university websites are really dated and just not very user-friendly. And the way that we communicate what we're doing and, you know, promote ourselves is very um, sort of analogue in a digital age. I mean, students engage on social media and on YouTube. They're used to hearing, you know, short argumentative clips, interesting, you know, vignettes of information or and so on. And I think there is a challenge for us to be out there as public intellectuals, to speak to students where they're at, not just expect them to kind of come to us through traditional routes like, you know, open days, which are costly, both in time and money for people, and that we kind of get our acts together um, within university departments to, you know, address some of these challenges and to meet students where they are. Um, and I also think there's lots that we can do around attracting groups of students who perhaps haven't felt that university's for them in the past, but also who perhaps haven't felt that history's for them. And, you know, as a discipline, certainly history is, to, is addressing that challenge, not least around, you know, work on, um, you know, Black British history, for example. I mean, it's been shocking how for so long the kind of narrative of ethnic minorities has been missing in, in, in the main narrative of um, 
of history being taught in the United Kingdom. And of course, therefore, it's understandable why lots of students, you know, look at what's being offered and say, but I want to learn about, you know, my heritage and my past and and so on. And so those kind of things which are being addressed, I think, are also really important. So, I mean, I think this sort of sense of threat is is overstated. I actually think it's a moment of opportunity and that it's, you know, it falls upon us as as kind of historians to to engage with with students, to, you know, make them understand and appreciate, you know, why history is important um, and, you know, make the case perhaps a little harder than we've had to do in the past, which perhaps isn't a bad thing. And I think universities are really well placed there or history departments are really well placed there. It might vary a little bit from one institution to the next, but often we're very well placed to develop new modules, to reshape the courses that we offer. And we're constantly updating what we teach and the seminars that we that we run based on the new research or what interests us and our students um, from one year to the next. So we have that capacity to really go in new directions um, that interest us and respond to the interests of our students coming in because we can be nimble in that way. And I think that's what, what universities really have to offer. I think sometimes there's a little bit of attention, I mean, building on, on what Anna said and how we present ourselves to p- potential um, history undergraduates because sometimes universities have the tendency to be a bit corporate and want to present themselves in a very sort of corporate way, which just doesn't sit happily um, with how how students would would expect to um, ex- expect to talk to us, and doesn't reflect how we actually study history in in the the seminar room either. Um, so actually, just as Anna said, conveying what we really do and how history actually um, happens and is studied in an undergraduate degree, I think is is something that we can do better. I completely agree, and it also you know that the corporate doesn't really reflect the. The, the psychological and mental nature of your average historian either. I mean, we are mostly a bit subversive questioning. This is the very nature of, of, of what history is about. I think that's it's really important. The, the one thing I wanted to say is two things, well, one thing, two things, Spanish Inquisition sketch. First is there is no discipline in academia that isn't going to become more interdisciplinary over the next 20 years. Um, and that's it's really important that history recognises that as well, that history needs to adapt. And this is the second thing. Everything that endures has adaptability at its core. And uh, it's really important that that history adapts too. That that we don't, you know, we don't allow the subject to ossify because it's easy to carry on teaching the things that we've always taught. That we recognize a changing mood, a changing need, a changing interest, as everyone has said. I mean I think there are some real I mean I agree with Anna and Richard in terms of that yes, there are opportunities to be had with those threats. But I think if you're on the receiving end, you know, if you're if you're running the archaeology course at Sheffield University, but then actually it doesn't feel like an opportunity. And you know, I, I'm in a Russell Group University and I feel quite protected in some respects because of that type of, you know, positioning, if you like. And that may not be afforded to other institutions. I think the other thing to say about the sort of the, the, the broader thing about, yes, we need to sort of say what history is doing, but it kind of goes back to discussion about what is history or why study history. There's also a way of asserting the wider role of the university. The universities aren't simply there to provide the workforce for the future. There's a research function for the university and there's a role in generating knowledge for future generations, both historical knowledge and other university knowledge. And I think that's that 
particular sort of ideal has been eroded quite severely in the last few you know years and decades in terms of the university role within society more broadly and i think that also needs to be asserted as because i think that's a threat i think there is a threat there in terms of what we see universities as a society for and it's not simply to provide the next you know group of students to work in x y and z that's important but there's also a role around knowledge and how that works and i think you know some of the undergraduates sometimes find that hard to understand as well but actually we have a twin function here we're here to teach them but we're here also to you know generate and do research and i think the general public sometimes find that that element of university life maybe even government find some that that some of those elements of university life quite hard to understand I think that's right, Jason. But I also think that, you know, historians themselves perhaps also need to appreciate that they're publicly funded and that we do have a role as public intellectuals. And we need to, you know, we need to speak up and speak out about things. I mean, you know, I think the the Brexit referendum was, you know, was was shocking in a sense by its lack of platforms for historians in the media. I mean, you know, various historians were reflecting on the implications, but you know, the, the media perhaps don't come to historians in the way that they come to, you know, economists and, uh, and others. So I think that historians have a job of work to do to kind of pr- to be visible. And, you know, I know from open days, um, students and their parents are, I mean, impressed is the wrong word, but they certainly note when they've seen people on television or on platforms or in discussion forums or being cited in in the media. And that's actually really important. I mean, I'd also just say in relation to Sophie's point about the kind of corporatization sometimes of recruitment. I mean, I remember when I was an undergraduate and, you know, going off to an interview at Liverpool and sort of going off into a professor's office and the whole thing being kind of both completely kind of intimidating, but also in the most brilliantly inspiring way. And actually having this kind of quite eccentric conversation, which felt like such a jump from me as an A-level student, I suddenly felt that, um, you know, I was moving into this scholarly community. And having that conversation um, with that admissions tutor I mean, I didn't end up going to Liverpool, but it definitely changed things. And I do think that perhaps we need to to go back to um, within the university sector, having some more informal, whether they be interviews or or meetings. Um, So often now, you know, universities don't do interviewing. But of course, if you, you know, talking to friends of mine who teach in the sciences and engineering, very often they do, you know, interviews of sorts or pitches and so on. And so, I, you know, I think perhaps that we do need to find a more human uh, touch when we do our recruitment and, you know, be a little bit, I mean, not intimidating for students, but make them feel like this is a different kind of enterprise and they're entering a kind of scholarly community um, that, that really, you know, will appeal to them. And we should make sure that it's accessible and not intimidating. I mean, I was a first generation university uh, applicant for my family. And I'm really aware that, you know, that was quite intimidating in lots of ways. So we have to be aware of that. But I kind of, there's good intimidation. And for me, going to to an interview with a professor was really, really quite inspiring uh, as an A-level student. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We need to resist culture war, either from the right or from the left, trying to take over what we do. You know, we need to be in control as historians.
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So the next question is, what efforts are going into decolonizing the curriculum? This decolonization is a, a, a buzzword, but also an incredibly important priority, I think, across the university sector. Um, we have had at Royal Holloway various kind of um, EDI days where presentations have been uh, made to us, not least actually from some of our own uh, students from uh, Black and Asian backgrounds who have taught talked to us and taught us about what we need to do to reflect uh, our, you know, our student body but also uh, to, to decolonize things like reading lists and so on, which, which are happening um, across the board. I mean, I think it's very easy. And again, I've learned a lot from one of our, um, from one of my colleagues, Shamima Akhtar, who was the uh, fellow at the Royal Historical Society leading on a report on um, ethnicity and diversity in, in um, higher education history departments. And you know, she always says it's really important to do stuff rather than say what you, you know, say what's important, actually show it by doing. And so uh, to, I think we have a hell of a lot to learn. And I don't think this is something that can happen overnight. I don't think we can just say as universities, yes, we've decolonized our reading list and that's all fine because, you know, it's, it's an evolving process. And actually it's, you know, decolonizing reading list is an important part of it. But actually, it's about inclusion and accessibility and diversity 
in a really broad sense, um, I mean, part of our the, the the away day that we had as academics was, you know, understanding how some people with, you know, learning um, difficulties find images on PowerPoints really problematic and, you know, whether they, you know, they should be labelled. Are they essential to what's being said or are they just there as an illustration and as a kind of accessory? So things like that you wouldn't necessarily think about is actually part of a bigger programme of activity, I think, across all universities about inclusion, um, accessibility and appreciating the diverse student body that we have. So decolonising is something that hits the headlines, but actually it's just one quite small part of, of an overall, I think, um, sea change in how um, in how universities go about doing what they do. I wonder as well about the relationship between universities and schools, and I, I wonder what... Um... Jason thinks of this in in his position with the the teacher training because one of the things that we we've tried to do um, in our first year of the undergraduate degree is I mean one of the big things about the first year of an undergraduate degree is exposing students to a range of history that they might not have encountered before and giving them a taste for it and what m- might they like to go on to pursue um, in later years as well and it's making sure that in that first year the full full sort of gamut of experience. Um, is covered from a diverse range of historical voices and perspectives so that students become familiar with topics and perspectives that they wouldn't have done before. But I know um, from from working with um, teachers in in our region and um, through a lot of what I see on social media, the extraordinary efforts that a lot of teachers at schools are going into in trying to um, diversify their own curriculum. And I wonder about um, whether that's, that's part of the answer as well is that making this not only a university question but a, a school one as well in order to sort of create um, that um, familiarity with a range of historical topics. I mean I, I think that's right I mean I, before I go into schools I'd sort of say that I think we've got to remember that the university project historically was actually not separate from our imperialists you know, ventures and actually universities were certainly the places where a lot of colonial knowledge was created and 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 constructed. And I think that's one of the things, I mean, certainly in Oxford, some of the colleges and some of the, you know, there's been quite a lot of work in actually examining the university's own role in that colonial project. And I think that is important. I think that is really important. In terms of schools, I think, I think schools, yeah, is definitely really important. And, um, I think there's a danger that we only look at it in terms of diversifying the curriculum. So, yeah, one of the things yeah that may come out of the ideas around decolonising is actually a real need to actually really think about how race, for example, works historically and in the present moment and perhaps in the future as well. But to do that, actually, we don't do that by simply inserting new black and brown voices into the curriculum. Actually, race is mutually constructing. We have to look at whiteness as well as looking at yeah, ideas of blackness and things like that as well. So I think the curriculum can only take us so far and diversifying the curriculum can only take us so far in relation to what we need to do in relation to decolonizing. I think Anna's point about starting to listen to students, I think is what's critical about that particular dialogue, because I think what we need to do, and because listening to students might completely reconfigure the types of pedagogies that we have both in school and in universities, the types of way we teach, not just what we teach, but the ways in which we teach, how the dialogue is constructed within the seminar room, within the classroom and things like that. 
And I think it kind of goes back also to Richard's point, which is actually there's a real opportunity here that actually all of that interdisciplinary work, I mean, part of the problem, again, with schools is the way the curriculum is defined is that it's kind of siloed. You know, that actually there's a real problem in terms of sort of history not talking to English. And you're thinking about the texts that they're using in English, whether they're, you know, uh, you know uh, To Kill a Mockingbird or whatever it might be. Why isn't there more dialogue between a history and English faculty? And we've got to look at assessments. We've got to look at how that's assessed within that particular setting and how that maybe isn't quite reflecting perhaps what's happening at university with actually much more interdisciplinary dialogue, which I think, again, is key to aspects of decolonizing. So, you know, because it's critically about methodologies, it's about how we do history, just like in the 70s with the feminist wave into history, how that changed the questions we were asking, but also changed the, the, the methodologies we were using. And I think that also needs to be addressed. And I think some there is work happening in schools, but it needs to start to extend. And it's very, very hard within the current regime of assessment with regard to GCSE and A-levels, where it silos the subjects and really limits the possibilities of thinking in a decolonized way about methodologies or ways of doing history or English and things like that as well. I think all of that's really, really important. I think it's vital that students coming in to study history at whatever level in whatever institution feel that the curriculum takes them seriously that they count, that they don't feel marginalised by their ethnicity or by their geographical or uh, social background, that they don't feel like an outsider looking in on on, on something that actually they don't really matter in. And decolonisation is a part of that. The other thing I I, I want to say is it's really important um, at the same time that we we recognise that while people should feel taken seriously by their own subject, we also want to encourage them, as everyone has said, to range outside the familiar. I mean, that's one of the points. Um, so uh, it, it's vital, actually, that everyone um, is, is looking at things that are not necessarily things that they, when they arrive as a student, they think they connect with. Why am I a medieval historian? Because uh, partway through my undergraduate degree at Cambridge, the rules around what you had to study made me do a medieval paper that I would never have chosen off my own, of my own volition. Uh, you know, in a weekend, there I was. Uh, this is the most interesting thing I've ever done. I wouldn't have chosen it. So being being pushed outside your comfort zone is important. The, the final thing I want to say on, on this is um, we've, we've got to keep the politicians out of curricula. Um, if I think about some of the worst changes to A-level that occurred in the last round of reform, some of the stuff that came in, stuff that we haven't been serious about for decades that was forced back in essentially for political reasons. Um, We need to resist culture war, either from the right or from the left, trying to take over what we do. You know, we need to be in control as historians with our students, with one another, all together as a community, deciding what we study and why we study it. History shouldn't become a plaything of politicians um, from, from, you know, whatever their political background. And thinking now about the COVID-19 pandemic, what impact is this continuing to have on students today, particularly in relation to remote learning? I mean, just, just from a school's perspective, I mean, I think probably the critical issue here is the issue of transition from year 13 to first year undergraduates. And, and, and the, my colleagues will all know about the current first year, because I think each, I don't really want to call them a COVID generation, but I think the current transition will be very different to the last transition into year one uh, undergraduate work. But I think what they will all need, and yes, 
this is anecdotal, but I, you know, I visit lots of schools. I speak to lots of teachers, and I think I think there's a real sense in which young people feel their learning in year thirteen has been kind of alienating, destabilizing, anxiety-inducing, and I feel they they feel very voiceless within that process of education. Uh, there's been a lot of uncertainty, I don't, I'm not, and that's not down to teachers. That's just down to the context of things like that. So they'll be coming into universities with with that anxiety, with that sense of alienation. So the one key thing I think in terms of what we need to do in terms of managing that transition is to make sure we listen to them, to make sure that we are compassionate with them, to make sure they feel heard in those first few months and and when they come into university. And I'm not saying that's not happening. I'm just saying that's that's the context of them coming from the current year 13 into the first year one. I think the other thing that they really missed is 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 that dialogic teaching, that 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 scope to actually, you know, work because this online forum I think suits some learners and it will be very different for other learners. Um, but for a lot of learners, they might need to re-rehearse how to talk to people, you know, in 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 a room, in 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 a lecture, and in those sorts of things. So I think that's another sort of very specific consideration in terms of year thirteen to first year. You know, how, how do we begin to talk to each other again? And I suppose sort of practical suggestion is actually sort of thinking about things like peer to peer support. How do we set those sorts of things up so they actually? can actually rehearse dialogue with a peer before they rehearse dialogue with with others and things like that as well and i yeah that that would be my sort of key anxiety about covid i think those are really important points and i think in a way they're challenges which well all disciplines face and in probably all sectors face i mean you know people finding jobs for the first time and they're suddenly you know in their first uh, their first role in work in the workplace and they're doing it from their bedrooms um, i mean it's challenging in all kinds of ways i think I mean, in many ways, the opportunities and challenges of online teaching and learning and assessments have been really interesting because for some people, it's actually enhanced accessibility. And for students who have got um, physical disabilities or um, mental health challenges, actually, they have flourished this year. Mental health challenges, I know, have been also uh, particularly acute for some people during the pandemic. But for others who have sort of social anxiety and issues around, you know, coming onto campus, uh, you know, learning online has actually really helped support those people. So I think that there are certain gains in terms of inclusivity. I think there's also had to be some kind of revolution in terms of assessments. I mean, we've had to move away from the exam hall, traditional exam, which to some extent was changing anyway. And there's much more varied modes of assessment now in history across the university sector. But we've had to see more of that. And we've seen sort of takeaway exams where students have had maybe 24 hours to work on an assessment and then submit it. That, though, has also highlighted issues about internet access and the problem of some students having a quiet space to work. And so in that sense, it's sort of challenged us around um, accessibility. Um, I think it's also in terms of pedagogy and teaching, it's for some people, for some of my colleagues, it's actually uh, challenged them to be a little bit more presenty in the way that they deliver things, a bit more kind of student orientated to produce you know, short filmed lectures that are very clearly signposted. 
perhaps therefore more user-friendly to students than long rambling lectures, which might normally be delivered. Um, and, and, you know, and there's been a whole of, a lot of work on um, virtual learning platforms to provide students with online materials. And again, that's really helped address issues of library access and inequalities around that. So I think it's a real mixed picture. Um, but I do think, um, you know, students themselves really, although they want materials online in terms of reading materials and so on, broadly speaking, they want teaching in person and on campus. And I think, you know, that's going to be really important um, to get back to as soon as possible. And, you know, speaking for myself, I really miss being with my students um, on campus. I miss, it's not just the seminars, because I think to some extent, one can have a a, a good seminar discussion on, on Zoom or, or whatever with, with students. But it's also the lectures because to me, a lecture isn't a, a, a sort of a recording to a blank screen. It's interactive because you can see students' faces and you understand if they're, you can see if they're not understanding it or if they're enjoying it or if they're not quite getting it and you can respond and you can introduce material spontaneously in a way that you can't if it's, it's pre-recorded. And I just, I just miss, really miss having that connection with them. But I think as well, one thing that I, I've noticed this year, and going back to Anna's point about the availability of online material and, and library access and things like that, I think where one of the, the integral parts of the history degree, I think, in, in most departments is the undergraduate dissertation. It's a personal piece of research that makes up a big part of, of the final part of your degree um, that, that students develop um, from their own interest under supervision. And where we've had to think a little bit more carefully about what topics students can take on because they don't necessarily have direct library access. And we've had to look at where there are online repositories um, for source material. The quality of some of the dissertations I've seen this year has just been absolutely outstanding. It's some of the best I've ever seen because of the, the richness of engagement with primary sources. And this is on medieval topics that you know that, that I'm working on with my students. But that has been one of the positives, I think, to, to come out um, of that. It's the thinking about how to conduct research in a new way as an undergraduate. Completely agree. I think it's the, the blended opportunity that we've not really seen before, that we've been forced into perhaps five years sooner than we might otherwise have, have, have arrived at it. But it's been eye-opening, I think, for many teachers and for and I think for, for, for many students too. I mean, but everyone's right. It would be good to get back to face-to-face as well. For myself, I hope I teach every seminar in the future online because I I found they work better, but I don't suppose I will. Can I just add one thing again upon the year 13 to year one transition? And this is, I just think that there's a potential in the current COVID generation, that year 13 group, of accelerating a trend that was in schools anyway, of distorting what history actually is. So, you know, there was already a trend to, you know, there's a phrase called knowledge rich within schools education, which is a sort of em- putting an emphasis on the sort of substantive knowledge of history, sometimes neglecting the disciplinary and the procedural aspects of history. And I think what sometimes has happened with, with COVID is, is it's accelerated that because, for example, in terms of assessment, 
the things that are assessed are often things that are easy to assess, whether a student can recall a date or a person or a, an event and things like that, rather than what their understanding of you know, processes involved in evidence are, whether it's understanding on how interpretations are constructed and made. So I think that, again, in terms of year one, you might find with some students, I think there'll be some teachers who really try to think about how to create assessment array around disciplinary concepts and procedural concepts. But most of them, and again, you know, working with teachers in schools, a lot of them were sort of just testing the sort of, you know, substance of history. And that, that I think, then distorts a young 13, year 13's idea of what hash actually history is. It's about memorization. It's about recall. And that's all it is. And that, they're going to get a shock if that's what they think it is when they come into year one, I would assume, in all your institutions. If we were recording this panel in July 2022, what topics do you think we'd be discussing? I suspect I suspect we'd be discussing the same kind of things, to be honest. I think I don't think there's going to be a massive uptick in history applications in the next year. I think we're going to be emerging from the pandemic and we're going to be reflecting on blended learning and how, you know, we offer courses and teach our courses. Um, I think history departments are going to still be in a kind of phase of having to fight for survival in terms of um, making the case to senior managers and indeed the government on the importance of history. But I would hope that, um, you know, historians across the sector would have risen to the challenge and that we would be increasingly vocal and, and public in in showing what we do and arguing for the importance of history and, you know, trying to take every opportunity to, um, you know, speak out and speak up about um, why history is important to the challenges of today. So probably not a hugely different conversation, but hopefully um, perhaps a more optimistic one as we as we move out of the pandemic and kind of look to the future challenges and opportunities, particularly around um, you know, the renewed um, admission of international students, um, which, of course, has been an, an issue over the last year or so. I think we might be, I mean, maybe not in this forum, but in other fora, we'd be beginning to analyse as historians what's just happened to us all. We're only just starting to do that now. It's still in the realms of political analysis, really. Um, but in another year's time, there'll just be enough traction that we can start to step back a little and um, draw comparison. I have in my head today, because I saw um, data on the increase in wages and at the moment, we think wage inflation is running at 8%. Of course, I've got in my head the Black Death. Um, one of its greatest impacts was, which government really struggled with, was um, the economic impact of there being fewer people around. Well, a combination of, of the COVID crisis and Brexit has meant, thankfully, lots of people at the lower end of the wage scale are getting big pay rises and quite right too. And it should have happened a long time ago. So I think we'll, I think we'll be starting to be excited by historians um, by the crisis that we're in. I would hope, sort of build, building on on that, I would hope, but not necessarily expect that we we use those skills as historians to look partly at um, the global pandemic and and the the effects that it's had, um, as Richard said, but also how we can put to use our skills as historians in working out how we tackle um, political discussion and debate 
particularly when it comes to social media. I think this is perhaps what, you know, what I would think of as, as one of the big threats to history as a discipline. It's the sort of the polarisation of political opinion on both sides and, and how history gets pulled into that from one side to the other, but also how we've seen going alongside the past couple of years and everything that's happened, um, this sort of increasing polarisation that is accelerated by social media algorithms and things like this. And I think one of the big questions for historians is how do we study that and how do we mitigate that and how do we archive those debates and discussions so that we can analyse them for, for, for the future? I mean, I agree with Anna that actually a lot of the things will be the same. I, I would hope that we could have a a more enabled and managed discussion about assessment and how between schools and universities, because I think that discussion needs to happen. I think the cycle comes up for review uh, for A-levels and GCSE shortly, so we might be on that trajectory. The other thing that we haven't talked a lot about is is, is climate change. And, you know, the, the young people were on the streets, you know, through before the Black Lives Matter you know, protests, which I think we'll still be talking about, but actually they were talking about climate change and activism and how, how history, you know, our scales of time and, you know, the, the types of uh, sort of chronological frameworks we use and whether or not they're, they're able to deal with some of the questions that climate change, are, you know, are asking in relation to that. Maybe maybe that will become foregrounded again um, in, in relation to what we're doing as historians. Our panellists for today's discussion were Sophie Ambler, Richard Partington, Jason Todd and Anna Whitelock. They were speaking to us for the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes features on medieval anxieties, Tudor romance, the legacy of 9-11 and how the British monarchy survived the First World War. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tomorrow, Richard Broom will be speaking about the modern history of Aboriginal Australians. (laughs) 